Among many other themes and undercurrents in the Bible, there is one that is obvious to most, and that is that there is a war going on in this world between good and evil. It is the kingdom of God versus the gates of hell. And the battleground is the world in which we live. And the spoils are the souls of men and women. There is a real God who the Bible says is a conquering king. And his desire is to give life and to give life more abundantly. On the other side, there is also a real devil. And he is a cunning liar. And his desire, the Bible tells us, is to steal kill and to destroy. And so God gives us armor and instruction so that we would be strong and victorious in this battle on this battlefield. But Satan, our adversary, is always seeking to move us away from God's instruction and the place of safety, the position of victory, so that he can, if possible, wipe us out or take us down. The Apostle Peter describes our adversary, the devil, in the New Testament as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he, as a lion, has had a strategy as old as time itself in his pursuit of us. And that is this, to divide and conquer. If he can divide the church or just divide a person in the church and get them separated, segregated in some way, then it makes his job very easy in picking that person off because he knows that there is strength in numbers. So where he can separate, he can then dominate a little bit later on. Well, what we've seen in our study of kings is that the kingdom or the nation of Israel has been divided. Ten tribes splintered off and they formed their own nation in the northern part of the promised land. Two tribes remained in the south with Jerusalem as their capital, Judah and Benjamin. And what we saw in our study last week is that Satan was successful in conquering or wiping out the northern kingdom or those ten tribes. They no longer exist as of this point in our study as an entity nationally or spiritually. They've been carried away as captives into the land of Assyria. And thus Satan can now focus his full attention on the southern kingdom, which was what will take place in our study tonight. However, he will not be successful in his uh, pursuit. So tonight in our study, we see, first of all, as we finish off the final verses of chapter 17, the fallout of the ten tribes being taken captive. And then as we move into chapter 18 and hopefully 19, our attention will shift to the southern kingdom of Judah as Satan puts his full attention on wiping them out and destroying them, uh, however unsuccessfully as he would. And so we resume our study. uh, The the fallout after the, the taking captive of the ten northern tribes. So verse 24 of chapter 17. The, The tribes have now been taken out And uh, this is what happens next. It says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead or in place of the children of Israel. 
And they possessed Samaria, or those northern kingdoms, northern tribes, their land, and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so we see the king of Assyria employing a very common strategy after they would conquer another kingdom. And that is to, first of all, remove the people that were in that land and scatter them throughout the colonies of previously conquered territories. And then to replace that land with people that have been moved or subjugated from other areas and then brought in. And so you see this great shifting of people. And the reason why they would do this would be twofold. Number one, it would be to break the national spirit of those that have just been overcome. If you're removed from your homeland and separated from your people, then it removes your feeling of a national identity. And therefore, it makes you all the less likely to regroup and rebel. The reason that they would scatter them is exactly the same thing. They'd move them to different territories so that they wouldn't have the potential of starting a rebellion or an uprising. And now it gives to us the history of what took place with God's land, the northern portion of Israel, now that the children of Israel have been carried away and replaced with pagan uh, people. Here's what happened next. It says, and so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Now, the message that God is sending by bringing lions in to slay some of those uh, people that are not fearing him is this, is that you may have conquered the people, but you didn't conquer me. This land is still my land. I haven't left my sovereignty over it, nor have I given up my position as the sovereign God. And though I've given my people into your hand for a season, you have not conquered me. This is still yet my land. God said, I've set it as the apple of my eye, and my eye will be on it forever. And so he sends lions among them. Wherefore, they spoke to the king of Assyria, these new citizens in northern Israel, saying, The nations which you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria... Know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they don't know the manner of the God of the land. Now, their superstition was that there were spiritual entities that had authority over different areas or principalities. And if they could dial in to what those gods wanted, then they could appease their wrath. And so they're superstitiously asking for instruction to appease the wrath of this God that they don't know. So the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from there. Now, that's a bad move. Remember, these are the priests of the golden calves of Jeroboam, false priests that don't know God. And let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, that's where one of the golden calves was, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit... Every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, and the men of Cuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burnt their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. So, and this is the summation now of this, these men who want to know the customs of God, 
but yet they still want to worship their idols. It says, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. Now, you might want to highlight that or underline that in your Bible. See, they learned to reverence the name of Jehovah. They learned the name of the entity, the God that was over that land. And so they feared him or reverenced him in name. But yet with their actions, they served the gods of their own hand and the gods of their own land. They feared the Lord with an intellectual assent, but they served with the energy of their hands the idols of their past. There are many people that do that today. They come under some form of wrath or there's a lion that comes into their life and begins to wipe them out. And so they begin to say, who is the God that we're supposed to fear to stop this lion? And they begin to, as they find out who he is, fear him with lip service or with an intellectual assent. But they're unwilling to repent of the idols or the idolatry that they've partaken of in their past. They fear the Lord, but they serve idols. What matters is not what we say or what we reverence in our mind or acknowledge, but it's rather what we do that matters. That's what speaks volumes into who we serve. Not what we say, but what we do. They feared, reverenced the Lord, but they served their own gods. And unto this day, they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after the statutes or their ordinance or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and to him shall you do sacrifice. Heart, mind, and body, all of it belongs to God. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore, and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, neither shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit, they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. Now this is a significant portion of scripture for us for this reason. It's because the people that began to inhabit that land became a people group that were known as the Samaritans, occupying the land or the area of Samaria. They weren't Jews, but rather they were Babylonians and Assyrians of a mixed multitude that were repopulated into that land to occupy it for a time. And they adopted the worship of Jehovah in name only, but they served idols with their hands. And that's what they then taught the successive generations. Now the problem was this is that when the Jews came back from their captivity and moved back into that region, into that land, they began to intermarry with the Samaritans, and the result was a group of people that were half Jews 
and half Sumerians. And thus they became known as the Sumerians. They worshipped and named the God of Jacob, but not according to all that Moses had instructed. And thus... There was an animosity between the Samaritans that dwelt in the northern part and the true Jews that were pure Jews that lived in the south. There was a form of a race war that began to develop in Israel between the Jews and the Samaritans that existed even into the days of Jesus. You remember that Jesus met a woman at a well, a woman who had had five husbands, and he struck up a conversation with her to which his disciples were appalled and she herself was shocked. She said, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me who's a Samaritan? And Jesus interacted with her, ultimately leading her to a saving knowledge of himself and then many from her village to a saving knowledge of herself. But the disciples said, Lord, why are you talking to her? And she said, why are you talking to me? Because Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. We see the animosity with James and John when they passed through Samaria and they they, they tried to find a place to stay and they were rejected. And they came to Jesus and said, Lord, should we call down fire on them like Elijah did? And Jesus rebuked them and he said, you guys, you don't even know what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives. We also see Jesus on occasion saying to them that he must needs pass through Samaria. In other words, he had an appointment with the Samaritans. And we see Jesus using the Samaritans in many of his parables and stories as illustrations. What's the point? The point is this. Is that though the Jews had a hatred for the Samaritans, Jesus didn't. Jesus loved the Samaritans just as much as he loved the Jews or the Gentiles or anybody else. See, we can get hung up on race wars. We can look at a certain race of people and we can look down on them because of their history or their past or what they've done or what they're into. But God only sees two races when he looks across the broad swath of humanity. He sees the saved and the unsaved. And his desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And thus that's to be the attitude of our hearts. There's no such thing as a Samaritan or anything else other than there's Christians and non-Christians. And we're called to see non-Christians as those whom Christ died for. Thus, we have a message to bring to them. And so this is the origin of the people known as the Samaritans in the New Testament. Now we move into chapter 18. And as we do, we come to the ministry or the kingdom of Hezekiah, one of the descendants of David. And probably the greatest king that Judah had aside from David himself greater than all that came before him, even greater than Solomon in some ways. Though he didn't come to the same pinnacle and Israel didn't enjoy the same prosperity as they did in the days of Solomon, his heart was more perfect towards the Lord and the revival was more pure than it was. Hezekiah, in a sense, was Solomon without the woman problem and with just enough wisdom to do the right thing and to uh, succeed within his life. Though we'll see him falter at the end, um, we come to his ministry now. And it says, It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now understand that we rewind in time a little bit. The Israelites, northern tribes, were not carried away until the ninth year of Hoshea. And Hezekiah began in the third year. So understand that at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign, 
Israel has not yet been taken captive by the Assyrians. We'll see it take place early in the chapter, in the overlap. But just understand the, the rewind. It says he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi. In, a, in Chronicles, she's called Abijah, which is the daughter of Jehovah, it would be, or from Jehovah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, did. And so he patterned his life and his ministry after that of his ancestor, King David. We see that there's no however attached to his name like there was with so many of the other good kings that Judah had. He doesn't say, however, he didn't remove the high places. He will remove the high places. He seeks to do everything that's right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, here's the thing that blows my mind about this, is that his father was a total creep. His father reigned for the past 16 years before him, and he was one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever had. And you would think normally that a wicked king would be followed by another wicked king because that's the example that he received. But this testifies to us two things. That first of all, it is possible to come from a horrible heritage and still make a choice or a decision to live completely for the Lord and to be successful. Heritage does not equal destiny when you bring God into the equation. With the Lord, you can break the chain of past wickedness and the power of God and the power of the gospel can bring a whole new future to a whole line of people. And we see that happen with Hezekiah. It also tells us the power of a godly mom. We get the idea that Abi, his mom, that she was faithful to the Lord. And though he had a bad example on the paternal side of his life, he had an incredible example that came from his mother. And the example that she brought and the things that she sowed into his life, those were the things that came forward and brought forth fruit. So you might be here tonight and you might be raising kids, but your marriage is unequal. You might be saved, but your spouse isn't. And you think, well, what's going to happen to my kids being that they're getting a mixed message? From one of us, they're getting the message of the gospel and salvation. And from the other, they're getting a message of live for the world and for the flesh and for the devil. You trust God and believe that he's able to make his seed germinate within their heart and bring forth a harvest of righteousness in the next generation. We see it happen with Hezekiah. It says that he removed then the high places. Now between verses 3 and 4, there are two entire chapters in Chronicles of things that happened in Hezekiah's life. The very first thing he did in the first month of his reign is that he reopened the temple of the Lord. It had been closed down and nailed shut by his father. But he opened it up. He restored the articles in the temple. He sanctified the priesthood. He reinstituted the sacrifice. And he called all Israel to come to Jerusalem for a Passover, something that hadn't been done since the days of David and Solomon. Even in the northern tribes, he sent the message. It said, come to Jerusalem for a Passover. And some of them laughed at him, but some came. And there was a great revival that began at the keeping of that Passover there by Hezekiah. It says that God poured out his spirit so mightily that they kept the feast for two weeks instead of one, and that there wasn't such rejoicing in Jerusalem and in Israel since the days of David and Solomon. It was an incredible outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Well, off the heels of that Passover and the beginning of that revival, then we have what took place in verse 4. 
it says that he removed the high places, something that none of the good kings before him had done. And he broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. Now there should always be a a, a check engine light that goes off in your mind when someone's worshiping or burning incense to an it instead of a he or a him. They were burning incense to it. Now Bobby brought up this, you know, uh, Esculapius thing that they had made, the serpent on the pole that Moses raised up in the wilderness, a picture of Jesus Christ, the one who would be sin nailed to a pole or to a tree, a cross, that if the people would look to it, they would be saved. The story is from the book of Numbers when the people were murmuring and then were bitten by venomous serpents. And all they had to do was look at this brass serpent that was erected on a pole and they would be saved or healed from the poison or venom of these snakes. Well, after that happened, they enshrined this sculpture that Moses had made, and now they had come to a point where they were worshiping. Understand this, that the further away from the Lord a person becomes, the more they need a tangible something to make them feel like they're close. And conversely, the closer a person gets to the Lord, the less they need something tangible or visible to make them feel God's presence. Anytime you need something or even somewhere to make you feel close to God, it's a sign that you're not as close as you should be. His desire is that we would be in his presence moment by moment, that we would experience his Holy Spirit speaking to us, fellowshipping with us, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. That's God's will for our lives. We should never have something that helps us feel closer to God. So he takes this brass serpent and says he broke it in pieces and he called it Nehushtan. I love that word. Everyone should have in their house a sign or a piece of paper or a placard that says Nehushtan. And whenever something just is taking too much of a place of affection in your life, just put that placard on it for a little while. It's just a thing. It's a thing of brass or a thing of plastic or a thing of sheet metal and oil or whatever it is. Anything that takes the place of our affection for God in our lives needs to go. It's Nehushtan. It's just a thing. God is eternal. It says in verse 5 that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him. He trusted in the Lord. Now, it would take a deep trust in God to do the kinds of things that he was doing. Realize that for 16 years, the policy has been pagan in Israel. And yes, after 16 years, there's a whole group of people that are fed up with how bad things are because of it. But there's always a group of people also that are happy with the level of corruption because they're happy in their sin. And when someone like Hezekiah comes on the scene and seeks to bring the kind of reforms that he brings in, there's always going to be kickback. And it's going to require faith. Don't you wish that we could have a politician that would come on the scene like Hezekiah that would say, if it's in God's word, we're going to do it. And if it's not in God's word, we're not. And fall the chips where they may, we're going to go this way. It would take a lot of faith to do that. And that's what Hezekiah had. He trusted in the Lord so that there was none like him before or after. Verse 6, it says, For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him. To cleave means that the two become one. It's what God said marriage was supposed to be, that a man shall leave his father and mother 
cleave to his wife and the two will be one. It talks about men in battle in the Old Testament that fought so hard that they were so dehydrated that their tongue clave to the roof of their mouth. You ever have that happen? You know, where, where you're so dried in the mouth that it feels like you have to use every ounce of strength to peel your tongue from the roof of your mouth? That's the picture, that the two become one. Well, that's the, the word that it uses to describe Hezekiah's relationship with God. That he was so intent on being one with God that he wouldn't let anything come in between him and God. That if there was anything at all that could come into his life and separate him any distance from God at all, even if it was a millimeter, then it had no place within his life at all. God was number one every day. That was policy for him personally. That's who he was. He was a man who loved the Lord. And then finally, it says that he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. So here's the biographical sketch of Hezekiah. Five things it tells us. It says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Number two, he removed the high places. Number three, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Number four, he clave to the Lord. And number five, he kept his commandments and walked according to the command or the word that was given to them through Moses. What was the result of the steps that he ordered before the Lord? Verse seven, and the Lord was with him. And he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He said, we're not paying taxes to the king of Assyria any longer. God's going to be our trust, and we're going to serve him completely. Any person that follows in the footsteps of Hezekiah that says, my life is going to be marked by doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, by breaking down the idols and the high places in my life, by trusting him completely, by cleaving to him and walking in obedience to his word, anyone who does that is going to experience the same outcome that Hezekiah experienced. That the Lord is going to be with you and you will prosper in whatever you do. That's what Moses said to Joshua, his departing words. He said, give yourself to walking in the word of God and you'll be successful and prosperous in all that you do. It's what David said to Solomon in his dying words. He said, give yourself to the word of God to walk according to his ways and you'll be successful and prosper in all that you do. It's what Paul said to Timothy. It's what Jesus says to us. And it's the words of Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but he delights in the law of the Lord. And in his word, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. His leaf will not wither. And that's God's promise to anyone who desires to walk with him in that closeness is that you will be successful and prosperous. And we see it happen to Hezekiah even though the national trend is downward. It says he smote the Philistines even unto Gaza and the borders thereof in the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And then it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And so this is now the... Judaic uh, reference to what we studied last week, the fall of the ten northern tribes. 
And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Hala and Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And here's why. Because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded and would not hear them nor do them. Now, isn't that an incredible contrast between what we just read of Hezekiah up a few verses and now what we read of the northern kingdom? One man makes a stand for God and he's successful and blessed. A nation turns their back on God and they find themselves carried away into captivity. Well, that's what took place. Well, after that, verse 13, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them? Now pause for just a second. All of a sudden, we find ourselves 14 years into Hezekiah's reign. We know that there was revival and reform in the spiritual worship of Israel. We know that he was elevated and prospered. But 14 years have passed. In this time, Hezekiah has done a couple of things. First of all, he has strengthened Israel militarily, or Judah militarily. He's built weaponry for them, and he's strengthened their, their, their military might. He also dug what is today known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, or an aqueduct in a cistern that led from the pool of Gihon outside the city into the city so that should they ever be besieged, they would have a abundant source of water. It's an incredible feat of engineering. I've actually been in that tunnel, uh, at least part of it. It's phenomenal, the thing that he did during that time. We also know that during those 14 years, he was elevated and prospered spiritually and practically. He was just elevated, uh, favored by God in every way. But now, 14 years in, he faces a huge test. The king of Assyria that took the northern tribes captive now lays siege to Jerusalem. And he finds himself in a position now where he's threatened to be taken over in the same way that the northern kingdoms also were. So watch what happens. It says, And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent a message to the king of Assyria, to Lachish, saying, I have offended, or I have sinned, or done wrong. Return from me, That which you put on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. That's uh, a, a, a large sum of money. I think it's 11 tons of silver. And 30 talents of gold, which would be one full ton of gold. And so we see Hezekiah falter here. He gives in to the demand of the king of Syria. He said, what's it going to take to get you to back off from laying the siege upon our city? And he says, it's going to cost you 30 tons of silver and one ton of gold. And so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And at that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid And he gave it to the king of Assyria. Now he gives in to the demands of this king. He's overwhelmed at the outward appearance of what things look like. He sees the army of the Assyrians. He knows what's taken place in the north. He understands the strength of their kingdom. And looking at things in simply the natural, he does the best thing he can. And he says, I need to buy some time 
And so he says, what's it going to take to get you off my back? And we see his faith falter just a little bit in this. Now, here's what's interesting about that, is that God doesn't hold it against him. There's no indictment for this. There's no prophet that comes and says, because you didn't trust in the Lord. And here's why. Because he's going to wake up and realize his mistake real quick, and he's going to correct it. And that encourages me. Because it's possible for people who are sold out for the Lord to still yet make mistakes in their judgment and do things that can be somewhat foolish. That's what he does. He does something that's just really plain old stupid, and he undoes some of the good that he did in order to do it. He has to strip the gold that he himself reprovided for the temple. But he corrects the error, well, not now, but he's going to in just a minute. But, um, but watch what happens next. Oh, here's, here's the other side of that. Here's the problem with what Hezekiah did. Is that any time you give in to the demands of your enemy, that enemy is always going to come back and demand more from you. It's just a given, especially if you do it without a fight. He just conceded. He just said, hey, here, you're, you want, what do you want? I want money. Okay, here, here, I have money. Now you think he's just going to go away and say, well, he paid us off. He's a good guy. We can leave them alone. That's just not the way it works. Same thing's true with our enemy. Did you know that? That if you give in to the demands that your enemy makes upon your life, he lays siege. And he says, here's what you need to do. You need to give your life to me or give your time to me or give your affection to me or your attitude or whatever it is or your affection to something that I'm offering to you. If you just give in, he's not going to stop there. He's going to come and ask for more. That's what he does. And so it says in verse 17 that the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabseris and Rabshekah from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. Now, these are not names of people, but rather titles or positions. The Tartan would be the head of the military. The Rabseris would be the head of the eunuchs, the king's servants. And the Rabshekah would be the cupbearer, the one that was in charge of furnishing the king's table. Now, the Rabshekah would be the least of these three, and really not that prominent of a person. But the reason he sent... And the reason that he's the spokesperson, we learn, is because he speaks Hebrew, which is part of Assyria's strategy in all of this. It says that when they were come up, they came and they stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. So the mouth of what would be Hezekiah's tunnel feeding the water into the city. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And so three men sent by Sennacherib are met by three men sent by Hezekiah. And they have this meeting out there by the, uh, the, the potter's field. And so it says that the Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king. That's pompous, isn't it? The king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein you trust? So what he's going to do right now is he's going to give this Rabshakeh four reasons why Hezekiah should doubt that he could stand up to the king of Assyria. Four reasons why he could doubt. He says, you say, but they are but vain words, that I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust and who that you rebel against me? Now behold, you trust upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt. 
on which if a man should lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, unto all them that trust on him. He says, do you think that you're going to be able to forge an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which was the strongest option Judah would have if they were going to try to fight against Assyria? He says, if you do that, it'd be like leaning upon a staff that's weak. And when you go to lean upon it, it breaks because it's weak and then it pierces your hand. You ever do something like that? I do that all the time, cutting something with scissors or using a tool and you're forcing where you shouldn't be and it gives way and boom, next thing you know, you're bleeding. That's the illustration that he uses here. He says, if you try to lean upon an alliance with Egypt, you're going to find that that's going to pierce your hand. It's not going to work. You don't have any options in terms of an allegiance on the human level. That's doubt number one. Doubt number two, verse 22. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, Is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, this is a very interesting thing that he's using as a psyop, a psychological operation to get into the head of this man. See, this was a good thing that Hezekiah did. But what the enemy is essentially saying through these messengers to Hezekiah, is do you think that the good things that you've done for God are somehow going to earn you his help in something this big? What really have you done for God? Satan's so clever in the way that he can come into our lives and he can make nothing of our commitment to God, bringing us into confusion. The third thing he says, verse uh, 23, he says, Now therefore, I pray thee, Give pledges, or taxes is what this is, to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver to you 2,000 horses if you be able to, on thy part, set riders upon them. How then will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you were to pay me, I would give you 2,000 horses. But you don't have men that could ride it. You don't even have a cavalry in your military entourage. In other words, we have resources to spare. But even if we were to spare them, you don't have the personnel to use those resources even against us. So if you're trusting in your military strength to save you, you don't have a flying chance. Because our military is so much stronger and so much better equipped than yours is. So that's doubt number three, is that your military is useless. And then here's number four, the nail in the coffin, verse 25. He says, am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He says, I am actually an agent of God's hand and I've been sent here to do this. Another psyop that he uses to try to get into the mind of Hezekiah. He's saying, you deserve to be overtaken. Moses told you that if you would turn from me as a nation, that you would be overtaken. It's happened to the ten tribes. They've been overtaken, and now God is going to take you out or allow you to be taken out, just like he allowed the ten tribes to be taken out. I'm on a mission from God in this thing. Here's what he's doing. He's using fear and confusion to try to get him to just surrender without a fight. Fear in the sense of, look at all your outward circumstances. 
Look at how dire the situation looks. Look at all the enemies that are just surrounding here. Look at how strong we are militarily and how comparatively weak you are. Get your eyes on all of those temporal, physical things. Fear. And then on the other side, confusion. Can you really trust God? Is the work that you've done in the name of the Lord and the dedication that you've made to him and the strides that you've made to bring the nation back, does any of that really matter to God at all? Have the changes that you've made within your life, Christian, have have they really gotten God's attention to the point where he would actually help you when you're in a situation that's over your head? Or is the dire situation that you're facing or the things that are facing you, are they actually the hand of God's judgment against you for past sins? Isn't the enemy so clever of how he knows how to use fear and confusion to get us to doubt, to take our eyes off upward and to get them looking totally outward to the place where we're crippled and ready to just give in to whatever? Well, it's beginning to work. Watch what happens next, verse 26. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shibna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray, to thy servants in the Syrian language. For we understand it, and don't talk to us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. In other words, hey, hey, you're speaking Hebrew? Please, we speak Syrian. Talk to us in Syrian so that you don't, these people don't need to hear this. We're having a private meeting here. And notice what the Rabshakeh does. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Hath my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? In other words, I want them to hear me because my master sent me to give the message to the whole nation that you are going to be brought to absolutely nothing and your only option is to surrender. If you don't want to live in poverty because of the siege or if you don't want to be killed because we overthrow you, then you need to surrender. Thus, verse 28, Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria. Now, notice what he does here. Three times he casts doubt upon the promise of the king. I love what the way the NIV puts these verses, because in the NIV it doesn't say Hezekiah, it says the king. He says, According to the NIV, don't let the king deceive you. Don't trust in the king and don't listen to the king. Don't be deceived by the king. Don't trust in the king. Don't listen to the king. Can you hear the voice of a greater enemy speaking through that? Isn't that the way our enemy comes to us in our time of need or in our time when we're facing trial? Don't trust the king. Don't listen to the king. And don't be deceived by the king. If you think that you can trust in King Jesus to bring you through these things, then you're drinking your bathwater. You're out of your mind. Look at the depth and the magnitude of the situation that you're facing. And you're going to trust in God. He's sowing doubt through seeds of lies. And here's his offer. 
He says, make an agreement with me by a present or by a taxation, a treaty that has a price tag. And come out to me and then eat every man from his own vine and every one from his fig tree and drink every one the waters of his cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive, and of honey, that you may live and not die. And listen not unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. He says this, if you'll just make a deal with me, just make a deal with the devil. That's all you got to do. And what we'll provide for you is that you'll be able to go on living the same standard and quality of life that you're living now. And when we overtake you, we'll put you in a land where you'll have your own vine, your own olive tree, your own cistern. It's a land of olive. It's going to be just as good as how you've got it here and now. Only it's going to cost you your freedom. And it's going to cost you God's will for your life. It's a compromise to have security and peace at the expense of freedom. You ever heard that before? Freedom, security, for trade it for peace? Not new. It's been Satan's motive operandi from the very beginning. Just yield your freedom that God made you to be free, and I'll make sure you always have enough. Sadly, there are so many people that accept those terms. They just want to live a secure life and so they trade the destiny that God has for them and they yield their freedom to an evil entity so that they can just have a certain lifestyle without any regard to, is that what God's best is for your life? That's what he offers to them here and he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Now, he employs his final strategy to get them to surrender, the track record of the Assyrians. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that they have delivered their country out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He says, look at the path of destruction that's in the wake of our coming. If you think that trusting in the Lord or believing the word of King Hezekiah that you can hold your ground in this, if you think there's any merit in that at all, then just look at where we're coming from. Not one God of any land has been able to deliver their people out of my hand in any of this. And that was true. Of all the lies that he's telling through this, he was speaking total truth when he talked about the destruction that followed the path that was behind him. But here's the problem. Is that he was putting Jehovah God on the same plane as all the false gods of all of those other nations. And God was listening in. How do they respond to this? What you have here is you have an enemy coming at the people of God seeking to get them to doubt and surrender and yield their freedom. And he's using fear, confusion, negative persuasion, and compromise. Seeking to employ those things to just get them to surrender. And he does it by putting them in a position where the odds are stacked completely against them. And here's the outcome of it, is that they're anxious. How do you feel when you find yourself in a situation like that? 
When you look around you and everything just seems like it's totally stacked against you. The situation is so far beyond anything that you could do. And your options are looking really, 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 really dark. Everything, every which way, there's no way out. How does it make you feel? Anxious, right? Well, watch what they do. Verse 36. It says, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Now, the tearing of the clothes was symbolic of the feeling in the heart. In other words, they were so distressed by the circumstances that they found themselves in that their hearts were torn by it. And so they would tear their clothes as an outward expression of that inward emotion. And so they brought the word that they held inside back now to Hezekiah. And just look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And we won't go any further than that tonight. But it says that it came to pass that when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. What we have here is the absolute perfect way to handle anxiety that comes to you because of fear and confusion, because of circumstances that are over your head. Notice what it says, first of all. It says that they held their peace and they answered him not. Now circle that in your Bible because it is very significant. They answered him not. Because Hezekiah said answer him not. The king's command, don't answer them. In their obedience, they didn't answer him. In Matthew chapter 6, the passage is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon that Jesus preached in his earthly ministry. And for 10 verses, he talks about anxiety and the cares of this life. Anxiety that comes from financial pressures, a lack of provision, circumstances that are over your head. And four times in 10 verses, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25, all the way through verse 34, that segment of chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Four times in 10 verses, Jesus tells us how to deal with anxiety. You know what he says? Take no anxious thought. That's what he says. Four times. Take no anxious thought. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? And then he goes on and he says it again. Take no anxious thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow, today has enough burden for itself. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Four times, take no anxious thought. Well, what's the command that the king is giving to us when we're overwhelmed and the message is you need to surrender and give in because you're toast? Here's the command. Take no anxious thought. Don't answer it. Here's the picture. Here comes the anxious thought. It can come in the form of a fiery dart The Bible talks about the arrows of Satan that he seeks to penetrate the mind with. It can come in the form of a letter in the mail saying, pass due or foreclosure is imminent. Or it could come in the form of a pink slip at your job. Or it can come in the form of a family conflict. It can come in a thousand different ways. But an anxious thought is now coming towards you. And here's the command that you have from Jesus. Very simple. Don't take it. Don't take it. It's coming. You say, "Uh, no, I refuse. 
I'm not going to take the thought. I'm not going to let it into my mind. I'm not going to let the trouble that the threat of this thought is going to bring to me bother me right now. And here's why. Because that's exactly what it is. It's a threat. It's not a fact. See, nothing that he says to him here is real at all yet except for the appearance of a thing. And what we're going to find out at the end of the story is that Assyria is completely unsuccessful and there's not even a battle that's going to be fought. The whole thing is just smoke in mirrors. That's it. The whole plan is going to fall down at the feet of Jehovah God. And God's going to continue to bless and possess his own people. And they're going to possess their own land. What does that say for you and me? How many times can we get inflated emotionally by things in our lives that are nothing more than anxious thoughts or vain threats that come towards us? They're not even real. I think of Jacob who was told that his son Joseph was dead. He was brought the coat and it was dipped in blood. He didn't know that it was animal blood. He felt the same emotion that he would have felt if his son was dead, but his son wasn't dead. He felt those emotions for no reason. And I wonder how many times we torment ourselves with emotions and torment of things that aren't even real within our lives. Jesus said, don't take the anxious thought. That's the way that you deal. I know that's so simplistic for those that understand the strength that some of these fears and anxieties can come and have upon your life. But those verses in Matthew are so precious and priceless. Take no anxious thought. That's what they do. They answered him not because that's what the king said. And then what did they do? Number two is that they cast their cares upon the king. They brought word back to Hezekiah with torn clothes. They were touched by it. They felt it. But they brought it to Hezekiah and then he tore his clothes and went into the temple of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says this. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's what we're called to do. And the Bible teaches that God is never too busy, that it's never too much, and we are never a burden when we bring to him the things that bother us. He's gracious and kind. I wish we had a half hour to go through chapter 19. And I know I have to tell you to read ahead because this is the Bible and there's no suspense but I can't wait to share with you the outcome of this battle as we see what God does in chapter 19 of this uh, scene and of this study. One more thing. Number one, take no anxious thought. Number two, cast your cares upon him. Number three, wait. That's what we're going to have to do. You're going to have to wait three weeks because... We don't have study next week, it's Christmas Eve. We don't have study the week after that because it's New Year's Eve. No study, by the way, New Year's Eve. And then we'll be back here the following week and we'll see what happens in chapter 19. That's, you know, funny. But in all seriousness, sometimes the circumstances don't just disappear because we choose not to take an anxious thought or because we cast our cares. But it does require patience sometimes as we work through these things with the Lord We allow him to work in us through the pressures of the circumstances that we're in to see how everything is going to play out. What we're called to in the midst of all of that is to stand confident that he's for us and not against us, that he's with us always, even to the end of the age, and that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is faithful to his people.
As the worship team comes, I want to close by just reading to you Psalm 146. It's just 10 verses, but just let these verses wash over you as the worship team comes. He says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keeps truth forever, which executes judgment for the oppressed, which gives food to the hungry, The Lord looses the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises them that are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord preserves the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise ye the Lord. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this word. And as we see you faithfully working, even in a time and in a people that didn't necessarily deserve it, it fills us with hope and expectation that, Lord, you're not only using the trials and the troubles that we face within our lives to perfect us, but you're also working in those things a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory for us. And so, Lord, tonight, may we lay those cares that we have at your feet. May the fears, the confusion that we face, Lord, may those things dissipate under the gaze of your perfect light and your tender care. For we choose, Lord, to rest in the promise that you're with us and that you're for us. So let us sense your presence and feel your hand. And as we close in this song, Lord, may it come from our heart. And may we sing it forth with faith, knowing that, Lord, truly you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.